Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March round the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march round the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord's, the Lord went forwards, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried round the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forwards, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched round the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched round the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time round, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout! 
For the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Thanks be to God. So there was a, a Christian uh, periodical once published a cartoon that depicted a high-walled city in the background, which was probably meant to be Jericho, and two ancient military officers conferring over a battle, a plan of battle in the foreground. And one officer turns to the other with a question, what would Jesus do? And so this punchline probably actually is what lots of Christians feel about this biblical conquest. You know, because God's commanding Israel here to invade Canaan and seemingly wipe out all, you know, all. And so that kind of runs contrary to actually what many of us, you know, what many of us believe about God or want to believe about God and it definitely seems to run contrary to the mind and spirit of Jesus and I know myself like the past couple of weeks knowing that I had this 
you know, we have, we were doing this. I, I've really wrestled with it, like really wrestled with it, because, you know, it's um, we're in it. We we do hear um, that, um, you know, everything. They they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys, everything. And that, um, you know, that really, I really wrestled with that. And I said to my mum, you know, and my dad, because I was like, you know, like my mum's like, well, do you need to do it? <laughs> that was what she said. She's like, do you need to, you know, uh, do that passage? And I'm like, but the Lord told us that we had to study Joshua. Aye, but could you not just do another passage? And I'm like, no, love to do Joshua. And I was thinking about how actually whenever I was, when I was a younger Christian, actually I paid, I didn't pay a lot of heed actually to the Old Testament. Um, and whenever um, I was discerning whether I was going to go for ministry or not, um, I had raised this with my um, supervisor uh, at the time, Neil. And, you know, he's saying, well, we all wrestle with these things, you know, because I was, you know, troubled by it all and he's like but you have to look at you know where's God moving what's God trying to say through these stories and so that's where we're approaching this from you know so if you're feeling a bit troubled by um, the the brutality of it then you know let's um, think about what is God actually saying to us within this and for me, I think what the thing that's standing out is is obedience to God. You know, this is, this is what it is. Now, we have within the Old Testament um, quite a few times whenever um, it's actually raised that um, God is going to give this land um, to Israel. And um, in Genesis 15, 16, Yahweh explained to Abraham that his descendants would not inherit Canaan immediately, but would come back in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the implication then is, is that God was being patient with the present inhabitants of the land but that when their sins had reached the limit, then he would use Abraham's descendants to bring judgment um, upon them. And so this view is actually confirmed um, by other parts of the Pentateuch. Um, God casts out the residents of Canaan because of their gross sexual perversions. Um, and we can see here in Leviticus 18, verses 24 to 25, do not defile yourselves in any way of these, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. 
And, you know, we know as well that the, so it wasn't just sexual perversions that the Canaanites were guilty of, but they also um, practiced child sacrifice and they also practiced witchcraft and divination. Um, and uh, their zeal for this, you know, is going to be punished as we see in Deuteronomy 18 verse 12. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord because of these same detestable practices. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. And also in Deuteronomy 9 um, verses 45, uh, it says, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your and integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we know then that, that this is happening because of the wickedness of the Canaanites. Um, and that God is using the Israelites to do this, to bring about his judgment um, upon them. And so the way as well it seems as if he's doing it is actually really quite strange. You know, it reads to be quite strange. But then I think that is so is that we can then see that Actually, this isn't men that's doing this. This isn't um, men doing this on their own strength. This is by the power of the Lord God. And as we've seen at the start of it, um, we've got this supernatural beginning as well, where we've got, well, it can only be an angel um, of the Lord, you know, coming um, and Joshua is going up and, you know, to speak to him. Um, and, you know, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, you know, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then so Joshua falls down in reverence and he's told to take off his sandals because they're standing on holy ground which he does. And so we have this build up that this is God who's doing it. This is the power of God that is behind all of this. And then we have the instructions for how the, uh, how the Israelites are going to take, um, the, take and capture the city of Jericho. So the Lord says, so this is verse 2 of chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March round the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. 
on the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast of the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So again, like we did a few weeks ago, whenever uh, Israel was coming over the River Jordan, again, it is the Ark of the Covenant that has to go first and that has to go in front of everybody. Again, this is happening because of the Lord God. The, the Israelites have already got their victory, as we can see um, by the words, I, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. But there, there's this, they're having to actually take stock as well. It's not happening immediately. There's a build-up. You know, and because they're being reminded, they have to hold on to it, that this is not happening in their own strength, but it's happening through the power of God. And we have the, the, the ark symbolizing the presence of God. You know, it is going in front. They are obeying orders. And there's something quite... Um, it's like a religious ceremony as well happening here. It's not just a battle. This is a religious ceremony happening, a rite. You know, the ram's horns, they're not musical instruments, but they are religious and military symbols. They are preparing the people to go to war, and they, they're, they're they form sacred, you know, and, to, to, and they've been asked to form this sacred procession. This sacred procession every day for six days around the city walls with the trumpets blasting. But they've to be, they've not to give a shout, they've to be quiet. And I think this is probably the strangest part of all, you know, because, you know, why? You know, they're being told to be quiet. And you can imagine that they're, you know, they're, they're maybe in a state of frenzy, you know, like they're getting excited. They're getting like, we're going to, this is the, God's going to, you know, we're going to capture this city through the power of God. So why the silence? Why the silence? And I think it's because they're being reminded as they walk in that ceremonial procession. They're being reminded of who brought them here. And it's only through their obedience to God that they've actually made it through to the promised land. You know, they've only, it's only through their obedience because previously, you know, all those years, their ancestors weren't allowed, they weren't allowed to, to get in. They had to, um, they had to wait. And we've got the seven days, and the seven days as well point to the, the feast of the unleavened bread. 
So no leaven is to be eaten for seven days as a sign of Israel's consecration to the Lord. And so, and it was during this season of the unleavened bread that Israel set forth from Egypt and witnessed the defeat of the Egyptian army. And then we had the second detailed description of a Passover um, in Numbers 9 is also followed by a procession from Mount Sinai into the desert. And so the combination of the march around Jericho and the Passover and of the Passover um, and the Passover of Joshua 5 that we heard last week recalls the first Passover. God will destroy Israel's enemies and consecrate the nation to himself. And that the battle becomes part of the Passover celeb celebration, so to speak, a memorial of that first exodus and a victory over enemies in the promised land. The capture of Jericho in seven days takes on greater significance than the traditional use, you know. So, so just because, because it's, it's now in that time of the unleavened bread, the feast of it. And so the silence as they go round these walls in this ceremonial procession, they're thinking about all that's happened before. They're their God that brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They're God who fed them manna in the desert. They're God who brought them over the river Jordan. And it was through God all this happened, the power of God. But I wonder if there's something else here as well in this, because, you know, you think this is an anonymous thing that they are going to do. You know, they had been asked to go in and completely destroy a whole, a whole, a whole city, a whole a whole, every, every living thing apart from Rahab and her family. And you, to, to, to devote it to God, um, putting it under the ban, so to speak, that everything that, that is taken from them is given to God. So it's either killed or it's given in fire. And so um, one of, a commentator, um, uh, Davies, um, he, he's got a really interesting um, take on, on this. And I really, I, it captured my imagination as I wrestled with it all. Um, I was thinking about it. So he had said that after verse 10 and also verse 16, you actually just want them to shout. You know, you just want that to be the shout and then for them to go in and do what, what has to be done. But actually, we don't get that. We get these detailed instructions. So there's this delayed climax. And so this, you know, delayed climax, you know, is actually the writer of this is doing this with a specific purpose. And so this is to highlight actually what is in these verses. 
that he thinks that probably, quite likely, Joshua has already given these instructions to the Israelites, that they already know this. And so they're then, you know, it's already that this then is like just has stylistic, literary, you know, stylistic way of putting it together. Um, just to highlight the importance of these verses. So, the seventh time round, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army. So, this is verse 16. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall be spared. Because she had despised, we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so as that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel, Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So these are, so these instructions, Davis thinks, has probably been given earlier on. And so as well as, you know, taking, being in that procession, walking round, not shouting, you know, they are contemplating who has brought them here. They're contemplating the power of God, how God is, you know, can bring about anything. But they're probably as well maybe wrestling with what they have to do. You know, perhaps they're overwhelmed by the enormity of what they're going to be asked to do. Because this happens in our own lives, friends, doesn't it? Not ex as extreme as this, you know. But when we need to take time to withdraw and contemplate what God is asking us to do within our lives. And it isn't always things that we would want. We might have to end a relationship you know, or walk away from a friendship because it, perhaps those people are leading us into habits or practices that are, that are not healthy, that are not good for us, you know, spiritually or mentally. Perhaps we're being asked to, you know, give up certain behaviors or habits. You know, we might be asked to move on somewhere else or move away. And so, in those times, actually, it can be difficult to praise God and to be shouting and cheering and getting caught up in the excitement because we need to retreat a bit. We have to reflect. We have to contemplate. And there are times as well whenever there's tragedy and we don't have the words to say. We don't know how to express how we feel. 
we don't know how to comfort others with words. And sometimes then, we don't know how to praise God or be caught up in that experience of just sitting in God's presence. Now, I'm sure that there were Israelites there who wanted to shout, you know, praise to God. You know, they've come into the promised land. You know, they're ready for what happens next. But they've got six days where they have to really take stock, really think about what has brought them to this time and actually contemplate the actual seriousness of what happens next. So they have to be quiet as they walk around those city walls. Feeling the presence of the Lord, going before the prayer, you know, going behind the Lord who's in front of them, his presence within the ark, keeping their eyes focused on the ark, on the presence of God. But contemplating, reflecting. Because even in God's victory, there lurks temptations for God's people. And so that's why it's so important that they fully reflect upon the instructions of Joshua. That everything in that city has to be given over to God. You know, so that everything has to go. There's to be nothing left that's going to lead them into temptation. There's nothing there that can contaminate you know, the the Israelites and their new life in the promised land. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron, they have to be given over to God and go into his treasury. They're not to be tempted. And in that time then, they can think on these instructions. And this is important to us too. You know, not just, not just the Israelites. Because just like the disciples did after their experience on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9, we can be taken up with preserving a fine mountaintop experience rather than submitting to the will and example of Jesus. The disciples then wanted to build shrines on that mountaintop, but in Luke 9 verse 35, our Father God says to them, and us, this is my son, listen to him. So there is time for for making a memorial as the, as the Israelites did, you know, the other week when they crossed over into the promised land. There's time for, for getting caught up and for praising. But there's also time to stop and to contemplate. Like, what season are we in? Who is it that we're following? Why are we doing this? 
In whose power are we doing this in? So we're doing this in the season. We're in the season of Lent, friends. And this week, you know, I ask you to stop and to sit in the presence of God. Not just go about, you know, not just go on, but to stop and sit in the presence of God. And ask yourself, and the Lord, are you living in obedience to God? Are there things in your life that are causing you to be distracted? Are there things that are maybe keeping you from fully engaging with God or for deepening your relationship with God? Now, this morning, (laughs) this morning, I went to print my sermon, right? And (laughs) I don't know what happened because I was trying to change the font. I lost it all. (laughs) I lost every single word of it and I couldn't get it back. It's a lesson to me that I should do this maybe on a Friday, (laughs) print it on a Friday. But I usually like to leave it to the Sunday morning um, just in case, you know, I've been inspired uh, by anything else over the weekend and then I print it off. But I lost it all. So this morning... I've been relying on my scrappy notes with really bad writing and some quotes um, that I have uh, picked out and the Lord. And you know what? That needed to happen. That needed to happen because I used to be so nervous like before I was leading worship, before I was delivering a service. But I feel as if I've kind of got into a rhythm, you know? Oh, it's like, that's fine, I can get up, I can do it. And actually, I've been feeling a bit stale lately. I thought it was like the COVID and all that, but actually, I think it's because I'm doing things in my own steam. And I have been sitting this morning really trembling before the Lord fully reliant upon him. And as I've re- and this week I wrestled, you know, I wrestled with this passage. And sometimes I think you have to live it, don't you? You have to live it out to fully understand it. And so friends, yes, I um, think, well, I've been kind of reignited. I'm like excited. I'm like, oh, and that's because of free flown here. <laughs> I think it needs a wee bit of practice. But the thing was, is I was so reliant on my script. You know, that having that control of my script that I was like, ah, oh, actually that needs to go. That's been a crutch. And just, you know, spent it. So that is something that has kept me from being fully present with the Lord. It's just kind of keeping me from God as well. So friends, I would like you all to really reflect upon that this week. But to help you do that, I'd like us to just spend a wee bit of time in meditation. So I'd like you to close your eyes and 
I'd like you to imagine in front of you a map. And in the center of the map is a compass. And the needle of the compass points directly north. Now also on the map are some small magnets, some false norths. Now in your mind's eye, try moving these magnets around the compass. Does the false north pull the needle away from the true north? If God is true north, what are the false norths distracting your focus away from God? And as you identify these false norths, move them to the edge of the map. Focus on true north. Begin to focus on God. And come back into the room now. So I encourage you, friends, to keep reflecting as the week goes on. Um